Welcome to Eternal Life. Seven questions that every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. This is a special free podcast series that is created for anyone who genuinely seeks truth, but who sometimes struggles to believe in some of the miraculous and supernatural elements of the Christian faith. This is a safe place where you can belong without having to believe, as we aim to objectively explore the logical, historical, and academic facts and circumstances that surround the life of Jesus, whom many call Christ. My name is Rory Vaden, and I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization. I'm actually a researcher, a New York Times bestselling author, and a Hall of Fame business speaker who has spent a lifetime wrestling with these very questions in my own personal life. I've simply decided to share my findings here so that if I should die before my kids become old enough to understand this, that my two young sons would have documentation for the rational reasons why daddy has come to believe in miracles, a resurrection, heaven, and the story of Jesus as Messiah. I'm glad you're here. Let's explore the evidence. Question number six that every intelligent skeptic should ask themselves about Jesus of Nazareth. And that question is, how do I get into heaven? If it's simple, explain it to me. How does it all work? And I'm going to walk you through how it all works and not only how it works. It, it, I could explain how it works and what you must do in 30 seconds. But I want to explain more than that. I want to explain why does it work this way, apparently. right? And in order to do that, I'm going to take you all the way back to Genesis. That's where we're going to start. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. Because in order to understand how to get into heaven, you first have to understand a rapid, high-level overview of God's relationship with us, his people. And if it's sort of weird, like you know that you get into heaven through Jesus and it means believing in Jesus, but like why and how does that how does that work? How does that make sense? How does believing in Jesus suddenly mean that I get to access heaven? Good question right? So when I say, how do I get into heaven? We'll talk about literally how to get into heaven. And I'll share that with you later, but it's more of like how and why is believing in Jesus the way, the gateway to heaven versus something else like being a really good person or being a part of a Royal family or something like that. It's different than anyways, that's what we're going to talk about. So here's what happens. Genesis chapter one, God creates the universe. In chapter one, verse three, quote, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Boom. So how does that explain the creation of, of, of the world? It says, God spoke it into existence. He said, make this happen. And boom, the world was created. That's the very first moments of the world. Now get this. In 1927, a Belgian priest first suggested the original idea of the Big Bang Theory, that the world was basically created in like an instant. And then in 1964, science 
proved this. So through cosmic microwave background radiation, scientists now agree that in a trillion trillionth of a second, a trillion trillionth of a second, that's as close to an instant as you can get, a trillion trillionth of a second, the universe expanded at ex- just extraordinary speed, boom, from something the size that of like a pebble to its, its now magnificent exponential astronomical scale. So in Genesis, which was written by Moses, okay, Moses is not trying to explain how God created the heaven and earth. He's not doing a scientific recount of how it worked, right? I'm pretty sure Moses wasn't up to date knowledge on and didn't have access to cosmic microwave background radiation. But science has proved that that is how the world was created. And so Moses isn't trying to explain how the world is created. He's explaining that. God was the creator of the heavens and the earth, right? Of heaven and earth. So that's what happens. That's where things begin. Boom, the creation of the world. Then God creates us. He creates mankind. Why does he do that? He creates us for his pleasure. So in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 27, this is a quote. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, in verse 31, it goes on to say, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So God created us in his image. God wanted image bearers. And I can relate to this as an earthly father, right? When I look at my kids, they both drive me freaking crazy. And I love them so much. I would lay down my life for them in an instant right? There's things they do that frustrate me beyond all get out. And yet I love them deeper than anything in the world other than my wife, right? And other than God. So there is this magnificent love for something created in your image, not just a photo, but an actual creation, right? A photo is not living. You could create a photo of yourself and you would not love that. When you create a child, if you've you've had this experience, you have a little version of you, right? You have, it can't do what you could do. It needs you to live, especially early on. It's just trying to like keep the thing alive. And then, but you love it. The, the moment you see it, it's a part of you. It's of you. It's in your image. And in all other ancient texts, humans are created as an afterthought, right? Like there's this, this other world of all these gods. And then like, you know, humans kind of show up on the scene or whatever. In Christianity, We're created in God's image. It is the Christian faith that assigns such a high value to human life, to all human life. The Christian faith is the faith that assigns that value to human life. Why do we have such a value of human life? Because we believe that we are created in God's image and we are his children. That's what he tells us we are. And then we rule over animals. And we rule over nature. We rule nature. That's 
what the Christian faith teaches. No other pagan religion taught that. So that was a radic- radically different. Remember what I said in the last lesson that sometimes the Christian faith divides, not because it's trying to divide, it's trying to be inclusive of everybody, love everybody, everybody is equal, everybody is created in the image of God, but it has very clear truths such as that we rule over the world. For some people that causes, or we rule over animals and nature. For some people that causes an issue with them. And if that causes an issue with you, sorry, I can't reconcile that. Like that's, that's what it says, right? So I didn't create the rules. Your pastor didn't create the rules. God created the rules and that's what it says, right? Now it's not my job to judge you. And here's where we go wrong as Christians, I think, is we judge you and we say, oh, you're living wrong. Well, yeah, you are living wrong. And so am I. And so is everyone else. So we'll talk about that. That's what this lesson is all about, right? So God wanted image bearers. Another thing to note, and and I mentioned this before, is that women were also created. And the Christian faith is really one of the biggest, if not the biggest reasons or ways that women become elevated in status. Even today, there are many religions in the world where women have a lower status than men, not in the Christian faith, right? So if you believe believe in like gender equality and that men and women are should be treated equal and paid equal and all that, that's a fundamentally, originally fundamentally Christian viewpoint in terms of religions, right? Now you might think of it as like it's it's general humanity, but it it wasn't for a long, 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 long time. And still in parts of the world today, it's not at all that way. So FYI, ladies. Now, then God, so he creates us. Now God wants to be with us. In Genesis chapter three, verse eight, it says, quote, the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day with, so with Adam and Eve, okay? So that's what's clear is he's walking in the garden. He's he's there with us, with Adam and Eve, with the first humans. He wants to be with us. And this makes sense to me, again, even as an earthly father, I go, I want to be with my children, right? They don't have to do anything for me. I just, I want to be with them. I want, I love when they lay on my chest. I love when they cuddle me. I love when they hug me. I don't love them because of what they do for me. They don't do anything for me. I do everything for them. They're a mess, right? They're they're like a disaster. But I want to be with them. I want to be close with them. When I am far from them, I miss them. That is the way that God, the Christian faith, explains that, that says that we are created in his image, that he loves us as his children. And our children, who we can all see with our own eyes, are created in our own image, And we go, yeah, and I love them and I want to be with them. So that makes sense, right? So every other God, right? And this is a big moment. And and I, I referenced this earlier when we were talking about sort of different world religions. But later, Jesus comes down to earth, right? God comes down to earth. So there's two instances in the Christian faith of God coming to be with us. First, at the creation story, God coming to be with Adam and Eve Well, God actually comes down in some other ways, many times the burning bush with Moses and things like that. But in more of a physical bodily sense, there's like two versions of this or like an actual present, ever present sense. God comes down to be with us in the Garden of Eden. Then Jesus comes down later to be with us in person, clearly in human form. Was God in person in Garden of Eden? I don't really know. That's not totally clear, but it sort of suggests that. But 
if you just look at Jesus alone, and then later the Holy Spirit after Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to be with us. But if you look at just Jesus alone, he comes down to be with us in human form. No issue or discrepancy about that. And Jesus is the only God to ever do that. Every other God, every other major religion, like God exists in the heavens. He's inaccessible, right? Matthew chapter one, verse 23 says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Everything in this story, all the way in the Old Testament and God wanting to be with them and build me an ark. And this is how you need to construct the ark. God wants to be near us as his children. Just like chances are, if you're a loving parent, you want to be near to your children innately, instinctively, divinely. Next, what happens in the story? Humans choose to sin. When? Pretty much right away, (laughs) right? Humans have messed this up and we've been sinners in the very beginning and since the beginning and always will be, probably according to Paul, right? So in Genesis chapter three, verse six, we only make it a couple verses before we start sinning. This is what it says. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So God tells them you have everything here in this garden. The one thing to steer clear of is this tree of knowledge, this tree of wisdom. You can eat of anything else But the one thing I ask you not to do is to eat of this tree. Now, this is really important. And this was a stumbling block in my faith journey for a long time is, and you might have this question. What One of the things that I wrestled with was I said, well, if there is a God and that God is supposed to be good, then why does he let bad things happen? And the reason is because he, he doesn't really let bad things happen. Bad things happen because people choose to sin. God doesn't introduce sin. People do, right? God creates this perfect world in perfect harmony and he's there with us. The people are without sin and he is without sin. And so we are together. So God doesn't do bad things. People do these bad things, right? So we might ask, why does God let bad things happen to good people? But It's not that God does it, it's that people do it. And also, as we said earlier, Christians are not people who believe that bad things don't happen to good people. We definitely believe that. We believe that bad things happen to good people all the time. We are the people who believe that the worst thing, torture and death by crucifixion, happened to the best person, Jesus. That's what we believe. So it's not a surprise to us. Plus, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Plus, all of the disciples are persecuted and murdered for what they believe, right? We don't, we're not the ones who who purport and say, hey, good things are going to happen to you if you become a Christian. We're actually the ones that say, well, you do get to go to heaven, but you're going to have trouble in this world. Why? Because of sin, not because of God, but because we polluted the world with sin. God didn't do that. We did that. God gave us free will and we screwed it up. We ruined it. And so then you might say, well, why did he let us ruin it? Why does he allow us to make poor choices? And that's a good question. And the best answer that I have come up with is because there is no obedience without the chance for disobedience. 
In other words, let me use my children again. If my children don't have any other choice but to love me, then how do I know they really love me? I don't. It would be forced. God doesn't force people to love him. God doesn't force people to love him. He wants us to choose him. Isn't that what you want your children to do, right? You don't want to force your kids to love you. You want them to choose to love you. You want your children to see what you do for them. You want your children to appreciate you. You want your children to thank you. You want your children to be well-mannered. You want your children to follow the philosophies and the principles that you teach. And if you force them only to do that, then they're not really choosing it, right? So you you allow them, and in, 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 in many cases, you don't have a choice to disallow them, right? But you try to correct them. You try to shape them. You try to discipline them. You try to coach them. You try to teach them in what they should do. And when they do it, it makes you happy. And when they don't do it, it makes you sad. And if we're created in God's image and he's our father, it doesn't seem like a huge leap to go, that's the same way that he feels about us. But he doesn't want to make us do things. That would mean we are his slaves. He doesn't want slaves. He wants children. Slaves are people who you make them do things. You force them to do things. You threaten them if they don't do things. God doesn't want slaves. He wants us to love him. As a parent, I get that. I don't want to force my kids to do things. I want. I don't want to force my kids to make good decisions. I want them ultimately to choose to do good things, but I have to train them up, right? I have to show them what is healthy food and what is not, and what are things we say to people that is nice and what is not, and how do we clean up after ourselves so as not to create work for other people. I have to teach them, but ultimately I want them to choose their own path. That's what I want to see happen. That's what God wants. And so sometimes my kids make mistakes. Sometimes they screw up. Sometimes my children hurt each other. They literally hurt each other. They punch each other. They kick each other. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're fighting over a stupid toy. Why would you hurt your brothers? Why would you hurt each other over a toy? And then you see people kill each other over a business or over some money. And I can't help but think that that's maybe some of how God views it. We sin against each other. It wasn't me who caused my son to hit my other son. I'm the one who gave him the toy. I was trying to bless them, but because they can't share and they can't take turns and they don't appreciate the other stuff they have, they're both fighting over this one thing in a moment and then they hurt each other. And I'm going, guys, what are you doing? And I get mad. I get angry because they're hurting each other. Why? Because I love both of them. I don't want to see either of them hurt each other. I don't want to see one of my children become the bully and punish another. I don't want to see another child be injured because I love both of them. And by the way, I care and love the aggressor as much as I love the victim. I love the one who is hurting. I love whichever of my two sons is hurting the other one. I'm disappointed and I'm mad and I'm angry at them, but I still love them and want to correct them. I'm not the sinner. I didn't introduce sin. I didn't say, here's a toy. I hope you fight over it and you can fight to the death. That's not how it works, right? God doesn't introduce sin. People do. 
And then it becomes a part of our sinful nature that still to this day affects Jasper and Liam, my sons. These mess makers, they're defiant, they lie, they steal food, they sneak things, they're, they can be little liars, they are fighters, they're self-centered, right? Just like I was as a child, because that is our nature. That's the human nature of people. We introduce sin to the world, and, and that is now a part of who we are. And it carries on until this day. We fight over stupid, insignificant things. We hurt each other over insignificant things. And we might think, oh, God only loves the victim. That's not true. God loves everyone. Just like I love both of my sons, even if one of them punches the other one. So then you might ask, okay, well, if sin is introduced in the world, why doesn't God do something about this, right? Maybe you've said that. Why doesn't God do something about all of this pain, about all of this struggle, about all of this tragedy, of all of this heartbreak? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he fix this? And that's a good question. And here's the answer. He did do something. He sent Jesus to permanently redeem it all. But we live in a broken world and God is saying, that's not how it's supposed to be. And so I'm going to permanently solve the problem. I'm going to I'm going to give you a path to permanently be free of that, to access heaven, which we'll talk about in the next lesson of what is heaven and where is heaven and and what is heaven like. So God sent Jesus. He did do something good. He did fix it. He accomplished it permanently, once and for all, through Jesus. That's why Jesus has to come. He sacrificed his own son so that we could be with him so that things could be restored. By the way, this is John chapter 316, the probably the most famous of all Bible verses, but it's not only John chapter 316 I want you to listen to, it's John chapter 316 verses uh, through 18. And this is the whole story right here, John 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And right there is the technical way you get into heaven. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How do you have eternal life? You believe in Jesus and you believe in what Jesus did for you. Now this goes on in verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. All right. So he's saying there is right and wrong. There is a way to live and not live. And that's why sometimes God, God's word can divide people. It can be a bit divisive. This even happened with in Jewish people. Immediately, Jesus comes as a resurrection and there starts to be a divide because it's clear there is right and wrong. God's word is very, very clear. There is right and wrong. There is sin. There are things we should do and should not do. It's clear. But the purpose of Jesus is not to condemn us. He says it directly. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then in verse 18, it says, whoever, who is whoever, whoever is whoever, whoever, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever 
does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So God is saying, look, there's right and wrong. I am clear about it. There is a way into heaven and there is a way not into heaven. And I am clear about it. But he's saying, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. He's not saying you have to be good. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. People covered by Jesus's atonement, Jesus's blood, people who believe in Jesus, that's who goes to heaven. And that is very clear, which also makes it pretty clear that in the Christian faith, if you do not believe in Jesus, this is what it says, right? This is not Rory talking. I'm not condemning you. I'm not saying anything here. I am reciting to you what God has said to all of us. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Not my rule, not Christian's rule. That's God's rule. That's what he says. But he says it's available for everyone. It's not exclusive to being part of the culture. It's not exclusive to men. It's not exclusive to women. It's not exclusive to good people. It's not exclusive to living people who've lived a perfect life. Well, kind of it is. It's exclusive to a perfect life, but there's only one person who's ever done that. And so that's why we need him. And that's why we go through him. So what's happening here is God is paying the price for our sin. God did do something about it. God is fixing it. He's cleaning it up. He's making it right. Which again, as an earthly father, (laughs) I understand this. My kids screw stuff up all the time and I have to come in and fix it. I have to come and make it right, right? If we're at a friend's house and they break something, I need to pay for it. They don't have money, so I have to pay for it. If they steal something in the store, I have to pay for it. I have to make it right. This is why parents with children under age 18 who commit crimes, the parents often are held liable for it, right? The parents are liable. We're responsible. We have to do something about it. In my own home, this happened literally this week. Liam, who's four right now, Liam got some slime. We went on a retreat to Montana and they went to kids camp and they made them this slime, this green slime, which I think is nasty. And the kids think it's so cool. Right. And so they love this slime and I wanted to throw it away. And they're like, they really wanted to have the slime and the slime was supposed to be kept in the garage. Well, what happened? Apparently somehow the slime got inside the house and we have all wood floors in our house, these very natural wood floors. Well, in the playroom, they man somehow the slime managed up, ended up in the kids' playroom and they got slime all over the wood floor. And when they got slime all over the wood floor, this was Liam, he was by himself. So we know it was Liam. He was by himself in the room. He got slime on the floor and then never picked it up. He left it there overnight. And we didn't discover it until later. And the chemicals or whatever is in this slime, we could clean up the slime, but it has permanently stained the floor. The chemicals have gone like through the sealant and they have stained the floor. We cannot repair the coloration of the floor. So this is going to cost us hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars to fix. And guess who doesn't have the money? 
Liam. Liam is incapable of fixing it. He screwed it up. It's his fault. He made the mistake. But guess who's got to pay the price? Mom and dad do. Thank you for listening to this special podcast series, Eternal Life, Seven Questions Every Intelligent Skeptic Should Ask About Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully, you'll notice that I've tried to take great care in documenting and citing references so that you can go explore the sources yourself. If you would like a consolidated copy of all of these citations, including an organized listing of all of the Bible verses that I referenced throughout the whole series, please visit eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free, and I'll send it to you. Again, to grab that free resource, just head over to eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free. Enjoy. So I didn't let good that bad thing happen. Liam caused that bad thing to happen. Well, I guess I did by allowing them to have the slime, right? I allowed them. What did I do? I, I gave them something that I thought was cool. I allowed them free will. I gave them parameters on the choice and yet they didn't treat it with respect and they caused damage. And now I have to pay for that damage. And so I have to pay the cost. And that's what God did. And that's why we need Jesus because humans chose to sin and our sin separates us from God because a perfect God can't be in the presence of sin. Just like a child sinning, it gets separated from their parents, right? If the child is sinning, what do you do? You put them in timeout. You send them to your room. You separate them, right? We say this all the time. If you have if you have two children, there's a good chance at some point in your life, you've been like, separate. Don't make me come down there. Do I have to separate you two? Do I have to come in the back seat? Why? Sin, that's what sin does. Sin separates. And this is what shame is, right? When adults commit sin, what do they do? They tend to hide it. They tend to cover it up, right? They steal money. They have an affair. They struggle with pornography. They get addicted to alcohol. They get addicted to painkillers. What do they do? They hide it. They separate it and they separate. They withdraw. They stop sharing things because they don't want anyone to know. Sin separates. And that's what sin has done since the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter three, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him. This is shortly after original sin. The Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. In Habakkuk, okay, this is Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, this is description of God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. A perfect God can't be in the presence of sin. A sinless God can't be in the presence of sin. So there's separation. So he can't be with us. He wants to be with us, but he can't be with us. Side note, book of Habakkuk here, by the way, the book of Habakkuk is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Why? It's only three pages. (laughs) It's one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. That's why you don't hear about Habakkuk very much, but there's a description there of God's character. The book of Leviticus provides, this is Old Testament, the book of Leviticus provides excruciating detail about what it takes for us to live with God and how to live with God, right? God's presence is described in Hebrews 12, 29 as a consuming fire, right? This goes back to the analogy I was using earlier of like 
Think of it like lightning or a nuclear substance, but way more, right? God is a consuming fire. And there are people in the Bible who drop dead, who have an encounter with Jesus or not Jesus, with God, not Jesus. No one drops dead from an encounter with Jesus. There are people in the Bible who drop dead instantly from an encounter with God. There are people such as Aaron's, Aaron's two sons. So Aaron is a figure in the Old Testament. He has two sons, Nadab and Behu, and they would die just from being in God's presence if they don't follow the proper protocol of God's explicit orders. You can look at Leviticus chapter 10 for that. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 34, that shares verses about all the preparation it takes just to be in the presence of God. So if you want to get a sense of this, just go look at these these 34 verses. You can read it in a few minutes. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 34. There's all of these protocols, similar to if you were coming into, into contact with a nuclear substance, there would be all of these protocols that you would have to follow. And most of the last half of the book of Exodus provides detailed instructions on the building of the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? That's the place where Lord dwells on earth in the Old Testament. He wants to be with his people. They got to build him a home that's suitable for him, his consuming fire presence to live inside of. And so they build the tabernacle and he has to detail that instruction for them. You can read about that in Exodus. The design of the temple, right? And people dying in the presence of God. I've talked about this before. Inside the Holy of Holies, when the high priest goes in on Yom Kippur, they have to tie a a rope, a string, a rope around the high priest's foot in case he dies in there to bring him out. So we have a powerful God, powerful God, very powerful. He's creating the entire universe in less than a trillionth of a second. Boom. And he's not to be messed with. If you've ever heard the term fear of the Lord, he is not to be messed with. In fact, in the last lesson, when I was talking about the eight reasons why I believe and why a rational person might believe in the resurrection, and we talk about the conversion of skeptics and this, and that disciples are willing to die for their faith, I told the story of Peter being in front of the Sanhedrin because Peter performed a miracle once the Holy Spirit came upon him after Pentecost. This is in the book of Acts. And Peter performs a miracle. And they say, in whose name did you perform this miracle? And Peter boldly proclaims, he boldly proclaims in the name of Jesus. And then there's this, they're going to kill him. And then this one Pharisee says, hey, wait, maybe don't kill him. Let him just go on. And this should all fizzle out unless this is really God's. And then it will take off. Okay, shortly after that, so this is around Acts chapter five, what happens is the Christian faith starts to explode. 3,000 people come to Christ in a day and they all start selling their home. They start selling their goods to support and take care of the needy. They start to take care of the sick and the needy. The early church is taking care of of the sick and the needy. And there's this couple these couple Christians. It's a married couple. What are their names? Ananias and Sapira, I believe is how you say it. Okay. So Ananias and Sapira, this is Acts chapter five. They lie about the, apparently they sold their house and they sold some of their goods or something. And then they brought an offering to help care for the sick. And they said, this was everything. This was all the money they got. And they lied and they dropped dead. Boom. Like, They drop dead because they're lying like in the name of the Lord and they drop dead. So fear of the Lord, and it says this, right? It freaked the Christians out because they were like, whoa, this is a loving God, but a powerful God. God is not messing around, folks. He is powerful and he is mighty. And that's where a healthy respect and fear of the Lord comes from. Again, 
on a much lesser scale, this is something that my kids have to understand that if you do something wrong, if you disrespect mommy or you hit mommy, dad is going to step in and you are going to experience, you're going to experience a little bit of the wrath of daddy. There will be severe consequences. If you say something disrespectful to someone, there's going to be serious. There are certain violations that do not fly in the Vaden family household, right? So God is way, way more powerful than that. There's a healthy level of respect here that is required because he's powerful and he wants to dwell, but he wants to be with us and our sin separates. So that's why we have to follow these protocols pre-Jesus. Pre-Jesus, there's all of these protocols, but a perfect God is also fair. So if God is perfect, if God is sinless, that means God is just, God is fair, which means that if there is a sin, if there is a wrongdoing, a price has to be paid. What is the price for sinning against God? The price is death. The price is death. You sin against death. You sin against God. If you commit a sin, if you break one of the laws of God, what is the sentence? Death. It is a death penalty. Somebody has to die, right? Today, if something happens with my kids, often the price that has to be paid is money, not death, right? And I have to pay to repair the floors or I have to repair, I have to pay to replace the thing that was stolen or broken. But when you sin against God, the price is not money. The price is death. Something has to die. And that's why there was animal sacrifice, right? They had to do animal sacrifice. When there is sin, that sin leads to separation. When there is separation, there must be a sacrifice to bring reconciliation. Sin creates separation. Sacrifice brings reconciliation. I'll say that again. Sin leads to separation. Sacrifice creates reconciliation, right? If you cheat on your wife, that's going to create separation. If you have any chance or hope of reconciliation, you're going to have to make a whole lot of sacrifices. You're going to have to apologize. You're going to have to go to counseling. You're going to have to show that you're different. You're going to have to change your behavior. You're going to have to stop cheating. You're going to have to stop being, you're going to have to start being nicer. You're probably going to have to start doing a whole bunch of things. There are sacrifices that have to be made to create reconciliation. With God, it's much more intense. The, the separation is death or the, the sin is eternal separation because he's a perfect God and he's a just God. So sin creates eternal separation and the only reconciliation is through death. So in the early days, the Old Testament, death happens through animals, animal sacrifice. By the way, this is stated directly in Romans, in Romans chapter six, verse 23. This is Paul writing. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the daily sacrifice of animals and the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it was necessary because that was the only way for reconciliation to take place so that God could be in the presence of his people, of these sinful people. But we would sin and then we would sacrifice 
and then we'd be with God. But then we continue to sin. Much of the Old Testament follows this pattern where God wants to be close to his people, so he forgives us. And then we sin, and then a sacrifice has to be made, and then he forgives us. And then we're close to him for a while. And then we leave him and we pursue other gods. And then it, and then the whole cycle starts over again. Like the Old Testament is that that recurring pattern. So God knows that eventually, ultimately, he has to do something more permanent to cover sin. If he wants to be with us, he has to step in and pay the price. If he wants to be with us, he has to cover our sin. He's got to foot the bill. He's got to take care of it, right? In so many ways, it's it's not that dissimilar from that parallel. So what does he do? He sends Jesus. He sends his own son. Think about that sacrifice that he makes, right? When your kid messes something up, you might have to pay money. You might have to pay legal fees. Often it comes out of your pocket. You're the parent. But imagine having to kill one of your own children for what one of your other children did. Imagine that. Imagine having to kill one of your own children because of what one of your other children did. That's how much God loves us. That's the story. That's not just the story. That's what happened. But that's how this all fits together. So if a perfect God wants to be with us, but he can't be in the presence of sin, here's the question for you, for your life and for my life is, honest question here, answer to yourself. Do I personally have sin? Do I have sin in my life that separates me from God? Have I committed sin against God? Now, in order to answer that question, you would have to know what God considers a sin. And the place you would look to that is to Tabiblia, the Bible. There are many places where that is is listed out. So let's do a quiz, all right? Let's do a quick quiz without having to read the whole Bible. I'm just gonna take you on a quick quiz to see how you score. And you're, you're the judge here. You're scoring yourself. Now, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Any, the violation of any of which would be considered sin and separation from God. I'm not going to quiz you on 613. We don't have time for that. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a small handful of the 10 commandments. Okay. I'm going to take seven of the 10 commandments and I'm going to see how I'm doing. All right. And I'm, I'm actually going to score myself here and I'll let you score yourself, but I'm going to share with you my score. Okay. Right. So let's see how I stack up. Now, this is Rory Vaden, allegedly a New York Times bestselling author, an eight-figure entrepreneur, a successful person by many of the world's standards, a Hall of Fame speaker, a viral has a viral TED Talk, has teaches, speaks to tens of thousands of people and, and at their events, okay? And someone who is putting together a series talking about eternal life. And I've spent a lot of my time researching this, okay? I mean, on the scale of good people, I don't think I'm the best person in the world, but I let's just see how I'm doing, okay? So First, now you may not even, how many of the 10 commandments do you even know? That's a quiz in and of itself, right? So first, first question, this relates to the first of the 10 commandments, okay? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, okay? Those are called idols. So let me ask myself honestly, do I focus on God more than any other thing in my life? And have I always focused on God more than anything else in my life? or? Do I have other things that I spend more time thinking about and pursuing? Work, family, the house, children, our status, 
title, social media followers? Do I focus on God more than anything else? Or do I spend my time and my energy trying to build and focus on other things? I don't know about you. For me, that's a fail. That's a a glaring fail. Now, over time, I'd like to think I'm getting a little better at it, but certainly it's a no contest fail when you look back over the course of my life. There's no way I could say that God has been more important than any other thing in my life every moment of every day, my entire life. Can't say that, right? So I'm uh, that's I failed number one. Second, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Have I ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have I ever gotten frustrated and, and have I ever gotten frustrated and said, God blank, right? The answer is, I hope you just doesn't discredit me. The answer is yes, I have done that. Not once, not twice, many times in my life have I said that. Many, many times. Now, have I ever put my hand on a Bible in a court of law and said, I swear to tell the whole truth in the name of God, so help me God, and then lied? No, I have not done that. I have witnessed people do that though. I have witnessed people who purport to be Christians to do that. I have seen that happen with my own eyes. So I know that it happens among Christians. And have I taken the Lord's name in vain? Definitely. Do I get mad and say, say the say the G word? Yeah. So some people drop dead, boom, on the spot. I haven't dropped dead. Thankfully, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. So, but people say that all the time and they don't drop dead. God's trying to save us, right? But anyways, fail. So I fail number two. Third commandment. The third commandment is to maintain the Sabbath, which is to dedicate one day of the week, every week to honoring God and to rest. This is, according to the Bible, the des- God's design for our life. We should take a day off from work entirely, all kinds of work. And we should dedicate that day to God, to remembering God, to studying God, loving God, being in God's word, talking about God. Do I commit an entire day of the week as a Sabbath to honoring God? The answer is yes, I do that now. But no, I have not done that my whole life. For most of my life, the vast majority, I'm talking about up until a couple of years ago, I did not do this. Now, was I working, like working, working on Sundays? No. Have I? Yes. When I first started, when we first started our first company, I worked a lot of Sundays. Like I worked a lot when I was in college. I studied a lot on on Sunday night. So did I have a Sabbath? But it's not so much just work. It was like, I wasn't spending that much time thinking about the Lord. Honestly, for most of my life, if I'm totally honest, what was Sunday about? Sunday was about football. And for much of my life, I watched football, college football on Saturday and Sunday was NFL. And if anything else, I was golfing. So now that could be honoring to the Lord, perhaps, possibly, right? But I wasn't doing it in any type of way, honoring the Lord. I wasn't doing it in any way, thinking about God. I wasn't praying while I was on the golf course. I wasn't meditating on scripture. I wasn't doing that in any type of a holy way. I was just watching football. So fail, right? So Rory has failed three of these so far. Fourth, here's another one. So this isn't fourth, but this is one of the 10 commandments. Thou shall not murder. Now, by the way, it doesn't say thou shall not kill. It says thou shall not murder. Have I ever committed murder? Well, I've never murdered someone in a physical sense, but murder is defined specifically, literally by Jesus. If you want to know Jesus's definition of murder, 
go look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. And he defines it not as killing someone, but as having anger. This is what he says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which, side note, is an Aramaic term for contempt, okay, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus says that murder is to be angry at someone. Have I ever been angry at someone? You betcha. I've been angry at the people closest to me in my life. I've been angry at colleagues, friends, family, strangers, in traffic. I've been angry in traffic, leaving the church parking lot. <laughs> like I have gone to church and then gotten frustrated in the church parking lot and gotten mad 10 minutes after church. Yes. So by that definition, in fact, I have murdered someone. Have I ever taken a gun or a knife and killed someone and stopped them from breathing? No, but Jesus's definition is more strict than that. So I have failed again, badly, more than once, again and again and again. Fifth, here's another commandment. Thou shall not covet, right? Thy neighbor's, thy neighbor's wife. Thou shall not commit adultery. So let's take the adultery one. We'll talk about coveting in a second. Have you ever committed adultery? Now, I have never cheated on my wife in a physical sense. I have never had sexual relations with another woman or anybody else for that matter. I have not had any sexual relations outside of my marriage physically. But Jesus defines adultery specifically, literally. If you want to read this, go read Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. And he defines adultery not as sex, but as lust. He says, you have heard it said that it, or you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. So have I committed adultery by that definition? Please don't think less of me or do, but the answer is yes. By that definition, I have committed adultery. I have looked at other women lustfully by my human nature, not necessarily seeking it out, sometimes maybe seeking it out, but I have never committed a physical affair with my wife, but have I looked at another woman lustfully? Yes, both before marriage and since marriage. And that is devastating to admit. That's horrible to admit that to my wife. Like, But to not admit it would be dishonest. I would be lying to my wife. I would be lying to God. I don't want to lie about that. Right. Now, do I proactively do that today? Absolutely not. In fact, what I try to do today is if I see something provocative or I see an attractive woman, I try to look away. That is what I try to do because I'm trying to walk in faith. But even to this day, I struggle with that. Even to notice someone and be like, oh, I should not look there. I should protect my eyes because I should not. I am trying to avoid lust, both to be honoring to God, this powerful being, but even in a worldly sense, to be honoring to my wife, 
to be honoring to the women that maybe one day that my sons marry, to be honoring to my mother. I care about that in an earthly sense now. And so I try, I try to do it, but do I, am I completely free of lust? No, I'm not. I wish I was. I wish I could tell you. I can't tell you that I am 100% free from lust. Now, have I gotten less and less and less and less lustful? Yes. Thank you. Praise the Lord I have. And have I been able to steer clear of a lot of the addictions and the challenges that come? Yes, I definitely have. Praise the Lord thus far. But lust is one of the scariest things to me. One is lust is something that is one of these sins where I go, man, I don't ever want to fall. I don't want to ever get sucked into that, right? So I can't just, there's this horrible part of of male culture these days, like in locker rooms and stuff. I remember in high school and, and in college, the men would say, hey, you can look, just don't touch. You can look, just don't touch. That's terrible advice. That's terrible advice. I had a, a mentor, a man named David Averin, who told me, not, not necessarily a, a Christian mentor of mine, just a, just a life mentor and a business mentor, but he told me, he said, Rory, when you see temptation, don't believe that you can look, don't touch, run the opposite way, run the opposite direction. Because if there's a line, yes, you don't want to cross the line, but it's very fuzzy where the line is. And the closer you get to the line, the more gravitational pull that the line has on you. So I don't want to get close to the line because the line has this gravitational pull. So I have to run the opposite direction. Have I gotten better about running the opposite direction? You betcha. Do I run the opposite direction? I sure try. Do I have a decent track record of that lately? Yes. Have I always been that way? No freaking way. No freaking way. Right? You go back to my college days, my high school days. Mm, Rory was far from a non-lustful person. I hope that doesn't make you think of me less. I'm just keeping it real. Right? So how are you doing in that department? I don't know about you, but... I failed there. Okay. So, so far I'm 0 for 5. Number six, here's another of the 10 commandments. We shouldn't bear false witness against our neighbors. So what does that mean to bear false witness? I mean, I interpret, this is my interpretation. I interpret that as lying or specifically, I interpret this one a little bit as like saying bad things about people behind their back. Have I ever said something bad about behind somebody's back? Again, please don't think of me less, but yes, I have. Do I do it actively? No, I try very hard not to. In fact, I have made it a life philosophy that I spread good news about people behind their back. I want to be the person who is gossiping in the good. I want people to go, you know, I was talking to Rory Vaden about you and he said the most amazing things about you. That is what my life philosophy has been over the last several years. I would give myself credit for that. Have I always been that way? No. Am I perfect about that? No. Most of all, do I still experience temptation to say bad things about people when they harm me? You betcha. Even today, even in my current state of my walk of faith and believing in God's word and doing all this stuff I'm doing here with this random series that I never expected to put together. Do I still have temptation to say bad things about the people who have wronged me? You betcha. I have some people who have wronged me badly. I have people who have broken in my house. I have people who have stolen in a way that you would never imagine. You couldn't imagine. Chances are, if I told you all about them, you would side with me. You'd say, yeah, that was messed up. 
but that's not what I'm called to do. So do I forgive them? Yes, I forgive them. Do I still struggle with it? Yes, I do. So this one, I go, is it an absolute fail? Well, yeah. Have I ever done it? Definitely. But even in this very moment today, can I say I'm completely free of saying anything bad ever about someone? Uh, I don't know. I would like to think I've come a very, very long way, but I don't honestly, I can't honestly tell you that I'm perfectly clear of that. So we'll call that a fail. So I'm 0 for 6. How are you doing? Number seven, do I covet? Thou shalt not covet. What is covet? Covet is like to be jealous of what other people have. So do I walk around with anger and jealousy about what other people have that I don't have in my life? Well, no, but do I scroll through social media and get a tinge of envy sometimes about what trip so-and-so went on or who so-and-so got to meet or the car that they have or the house that they have or just the number of followers that they have or how many views they got on their video or how many downloads did they get on their podcast or how many likes do they have on their post or how many comments do they have on their post or they went viral. Do I ever have a tinge of envy? Let's be honest. I have more than a tinge. Is it a predominant part of my life? I hope not. I like to think not. Am I trying to walk better in that department? I sure am. Am I doing better? Yeah. Am I perfect? I'm not even freaking close. How are you doing? I'm so honored that you are here. And I really hope that this Eternal Life podcast series is helpful to you and your loved ones. On that note, can I ask a quick favor? If you feel like it's appropriate, would you mind leaving me a rating and review on whatever platform it is that you use to listen to this show? That really helps get the word out about this so that we can reach more people with this information. And it helps people decide if this is something they should really take the time to get into. Relatedly, I also want to encourage you to share this episode or this entire series with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Obviously, it's totally free, but it's our prayer that God would use this series to reach a lot of people because we know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with doubt and skepticism, and I know what that's like. And I also know what it's like to experience the deep peace and fulfillment that comes from having completed all of this research. So if you don't mind, just visit the main listing of this series in whatever app you're using to listen to it and leave us a rating and review, and then just hit the share button and send this out to anyone in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks so much. So we'll stop there. I'm 0 for 7. So far in just seven of the Ten Commandments, oh four seven. That's me. Here I am talking about Jesus and faith in the Bible and why you should believe it and all this stuff. And that's me, the messenger, going, "I suck. I have failed badly." Right? I don't think I suck like my identity. My identity, my identity is that I'm a child of God. So I have I have eternal value there. But my performance is pretty crappy. Pretty crappy. That's my performance. And so do I say and think 
judgmental things about other people who all, by the way, are God's children. Everybody, everybody you hate is God's child. Everybody you're mad with, everyone who's ever hurt you, everyone who's, they are God's children. And here's what Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Who is saying that? Jesus. Jesus is being straight up, right? Jesus is not mincing his words. He is telling it like it is. And who's he talking to? He's talking to me. So should I judge people who commit sexual immorality, who commit sexual sin? The Bible is very clear on sexual sin, folks. You can go read what it says about sexual sin. Not what Rory says about sexual sin, but what the Bible says about sexual sin. There are some things in there that might cause an issue with you because of of the way of the world today. You can read them for yourself. But is it my job to judge those people? Is it my job to say you are wrong? No. The Bible is both clear that it is wrong. It is also clear that it is not my job to judge those people because it's also clear that those people that I am judging are me. And I might use a scale that says, oh, well, what they're doing is worse than me. They're committing physical sexual acts that are not wrong, but it doesn't matter. Jesus says it's not physical, it's lust. And any sin separates you from a perfect God. So then just ask yourself, score yourself on this quiz. How are you doing? How are you doing? Ask yourself, do I need a savior? Or just say, do have I sinned according to God's word? Just on those seven things. Have you ever violated any of them? If so, that means you're a sinner. You have sinned. I mean, does it mean you're an active sinner? Does it mean you're a bad person by the world standards today? No, but being in the presence of God, being a good person is not good enough to be in the presence of God because God is perfect. So in order for you to access God on your own, through your own power, you have to be so good that you are perfect. You have to have a perfect track record. That's what the Bible says. It's super clear. And it's going, if you're not perfect, then that is sin. And if there is sin, there must be sacrifice. And that sacrifice is death. Something, someone must die to pay for those sins, no matter how small they are. If you want to be, if you want eternal life, if you want to be in the presence of God, someone has to pay that cost. And most of us, I'm going to venture to say all of us, but most of us are not perfect. Most of us don't even come close to the standard of perfection. So when we say that we're sinners, it doesn't mean we're worthless. It doesn't mean that we're criminals. It doesn't mean that I'm breaking the law. The law, the governmental law is much less strict than the spiritual law of the word of God, right? I only go to jail if I kill someone and stab someone or make them stop breathing. That's murder. That's the governmental or the worldly law. That's a much less stringent 
standard than what Jesus is saying that is if you're angry with your brother, if you're angry, if you've ever been angry at someone you know, then you have committed murder. That's violation. That's anger. Anger, is, that is separation from God. So unless you've been perfect in all those categories, all of us are equally not good enough. And so what is my conclusion about myself? I am a sinner. By that standard, I am a sinner. Am I a bad person? Am I actively choosing to sin? Am I deliberately trying to disobey God? No, I like to think that I'm a good person. I am not actively sinning. I'm trying to be obedient to God's word. I'm trying to tithe. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to preserve the Sabbath. I'm trying to look the opposite direction when I see sexual temptation. I'm trying to say nice things about people behind their back. I'm trying to not get angry, but I'm not perfect even today, not even close to perfect. So while I like to think of myself as a good person by the worldly standards, and I, what I am is a law-abiding citizen, other than speeding. Like for the most part, I am a law-abiding citizen. I am definitely a sinner by the standard of God's law. So part of why I believe there is a re- part of why I believe in the resurrection. I didn't include this in the in the last section because it's it's not really historical. But part of why I have come to believe in the resurrection is because when I look at my life, I realize. There is no other way. There's no way I'm getting to heaven on my own. There's no way I'm nearing this standard of perfection. When I started this series in in lesson one, I said, what is your strategy against death? And I asked the question, who goes to heaven? And if it's good people that go to heaven, how good do you have to be? No one has been clear about that line except for Christ and God and God's word is super clear about that line. And the line is, the bar is so high that all of us fall short. So there's no scenario in which my life upholds anything even close to perfect, that my soul could be in proximity to a perfect God. There's too many blemishes on my record. There's too many misdeeds. There's there's too many impure thoughts. There's too many self-centered concerns. There's too many impure actions. There's too much hoarding, too many wrong things I've said, too much anger that I've had, too many people that I've hurt. And still to this day, after years of studying this and pursuing a life to try to be more like Jesus, to try to follow God's word, I still struggle with the temptation to sin of all different kinds. And you know who else did? Paul did. Paul, the most prolific character. Remember Saul, who was a massive sinner. He was actually a murderer, who then has a conversion and becomes a believer and kind of becomes the super believer. God's of all the earthly people since Jesus, you could argue that kind of Paul is number one. Like of all the people who have ever walked the Christian faith since Jesus, Paul or Peter, but let's say Paul, he has been more evangelical probably than anyone. I mean, he wrote more about it. He traveled more. He sacrificed more more years of his life, like gave up everything, of course. Like Paul would be up there on the list of good Christians. And what does Paul write about himself? I empathize with what he says here. Listen to this. So this is Paul writing about himself. This is in Romans chapter seven, verses 14 through 25. Paul says, I am unspiritual, sold, as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And then later in verse 17, he says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. 
but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then he continues on in in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this is Paul. He's, he, and this is in Romans. He talks about this again. Okay, this is the arguably the best Christian, or let's just say unarguably one of the best Christians to ever live, right? And he, this is his self-assessment. So he does this again in 1 Timothy. So he's writing a letter to Timothy, which is like his understudy, right? So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, which later becomes a book in the New Covenant, which becomes the New Testament. And now we call it the book of Timothy. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So this is one of the greatest Christians in history. And I see myself in his words there, right? I have literally written one of the best-selling books of all time on the topic of self-discipline. That's my book, Take the Stairs. It is one of the best-selling books of all time. I'm making a factual, objective statement on the topic of self-discipline. And still yet, to this very day, I struggle with self-discipline. I struggle to discipline myself to do these things. And despite someone who tries fervently to live a good life and to fervently live an honorable life and to fervently try to abide and be obedient to God's word, I still say the wrong things. I'm still prideful. I'm still slow to apologize and slow to forgive. I still get angry at people. I'm still tempted to point my finger at the world and say, that is wrong. You should not be doing that. I'm still, I'm tempted to judge people. I still have indulgent, self-centered thoughts. I still covet and I still face temptations that I have to battle away. In other words, I can't make it on my own. I'm not even close. And there's a chance, just a chance that maybe if you're honest with yourself and that you do a little self-scoring and a little self-assessment that maybe you've fallen short a time or two in one or a couple of those areas? Maybe. At least I can say that I have. And that's why I can unapologetically admit I need a savior. By the world standards, I think I'm a decent person. I'd say I'm a good person. I try to do good in the world, straight up. But by God's standard, being in the presence of a perfect God, I'm not even close. And I think that's why it's as if I have been programmed with this longing and this calling to ever be in search of filling this God-sized hole in my heart, to be on this, this lookout to go, there's something empty in me. There's something that doesn't fit. I need answers to these questions about 
Why is the world broken? And I yearn to know that death and the end of this life is not the end of me and that it's not the end of my soul, but there is something more. And it's it's as if God made me that way so that I find him. It's like the it's like the it's like my lifeline to him. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says it directly: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if I am a sinner, then that means I need a savior. I need a sacrifice in order to get into heaven. I need to pay a price. I need to shed blood. I need to commit a sacrifice, meaning something needs to die. Blood needs to be spilt to cover up and erase my sin. That's the story of the Old Testament. But then here's the miracle. Jesus pays my debt for me. Jesus comes down and he pays the price. How? Through his blood, not as an animal, but as a human and as God incarnate, as the son of God. The blood of the son is the only thing that's enough to cover the sins of the world. And that's why in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says the words, I came as a ransom for many. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, God made him who had no sin. And by the way, some of these, some translations say that made him a sin offering. Okay. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus becomes sin. He takes on our sin. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine say, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God is the only one who can pay this price. Jesus, more specifically, is the only one who can pay this price. No one has lived a perfect life, not perfect enough to be in the eternal presence of a perfect God. We're not even close and no one has earned it. So we can't even have pride. The only way we get it is through a gift, right? The only way that we fix our floor that got messed up with slime is that I pay for it and me and mom pay for it. And Liam never pays us back. We take care of it. Liam can never boast about paying for that. All he can do is apologize. And you know what? All I want him to do is apologize. What is it that you want as a parent? You say, I want them to apologize and then not do it again, which is the definition of the word repent. It means return or turn the opposite direction. I want him to say, I'm sorry and never do it again, which doesn't seem that different or dissimilar from this whole story of God is I have to, what do I have to do? I have to say, God, I'm sorry and I will do my best to never do it again. Thank you for paying the price for me. And so what does this mean? This means something very big. It means that if I need a savior, if I am a sinner, this also means 
that I am the crucifier. And all of this time, you may have thought it was the Jewish Pharisees that committed Jesus to die on the cross. And in a literal sense, they did. But in the eternal sense, the metaphorical sense, and in, in, in the it's not even metaphorical, in the literal spiritual sense, what this means is that because I am a sinner, I am the crucifier. I am the reason Jesus died. I am the reason Jesus was tortured. My sin, it was my mistakes that he had to die for me, which means that I am a part of the crowd, right? In Luke chapter 23, verses 14 through 21, I'm going to shorten this a little bit. So this is a paraphrase, but in chapter 14 or in verse 14, chapter 23, verse 14, Pilate says, I have examined him in your presence and I have found no basis for your charges against him. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will release him. And in chapter 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them, the crowd again. So Pilate was trying not to crucify Jesus, but the crowd. So this is in chapter 23, verse 21 of Luke. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It has always felt so weird. How did the group think get to that point where they're yelling, crucify him, right? These are the Jewish people. They are the people for which Jesus came. They're the ones who had it right all along. They were up until that point, the only ones who had access to God. They were Israel. And yet they were the ones yelling, crucify him. But who is in that crowd? I am. I am in that crowd yelling, crucify him. I am the crucifier because it's my sin for which Jesus had to die. And then Jesus chose to die. This means that I stand up in a court, right? And I'm judged, but like, it's me who does it. I am the thorn in Jesus's head. It's Rory's, because of Rory's sin, it is pressed into Jesus's skull to where he's bleeding down his face. The reason I am the one whipping the back, slashing and cutting lacerations that are ripping apart his body. It's my sin that's doing it to him. I am the one spitting in his face. It's my sin. That's because of me. I am the one who takes the stake and drives it through Jesus's wrist. It's because of my sin that this has to happen. I am the crucifier. I am the one who takes a stake and drives it through his ankles or through his feet. It's supposed to be me. I'm the one who deserves to die. I'm the one who's supposed to bleed. I am the one who's supposed to be humiliated. I'm the one who's supposed to be mocked. I'm the one who's supposed to be tortured. You're supposed to suffocate me. You're supposed to murder me in the most painful way possible. And then you're supposed to jab a spear in my side so that my blood drains out because it's Rory's sin. It's Rory's failure. It's my sin. You're supposed to place the full weight of my sin on me. I'm supposed to die. I'm supposed to have to, to pay for my own dues. It's like I'm standing in court. I am judged. I fail. I fall short. 
my sins are posted up on the wall for the world to see, for the judge to see my thoughts and my actions. And the judge says, Rory, you are a sinner. You're not even close. You're sentenced to death. Not only death, you are sentenced to eternal separation from all that is good. You're not good enough to be in the presence of a perfect God because you're not perfect. And the only acceptable entrance fee is either a perfect life, which you do not have, or the blood shed of some innocent, perfect life. And then someone in the courtroom who's watching named Jesus stands up and says, I will take the death sentence for Rory's sin. I will take his place. Instead of killing him, kill me. And there's one of my favorite songs of all time is by a group called 10th Avenue North. It's called Love Me Anyway. And it says, I am the man in the crowd. I am the nail in his wrist. I am the thorn in his head. And I am the crucifier. I I may not have been the crucifier. I wasn't the Roman soldier doing it. I wasn't the Jewish Pharisee. And I wasn't at the Sanhedrin that sentenced Jesus to death. I'm just the reason it had to happen. And if you have ever sinned, you are too. We are. And we all fall short. It's easy to point the finger and blame the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually lived a pretty good life. They're the one, I mean, probably most of them, they were the ones abiding. I'm sure those people abided by a lot more of the laws than I did. So and that I have. So there's a good chance that on the totem pole, if there's a, if there is a ranking system of people who have lived by the law, they would be ahead of me. And it's easy to point the finger and say, they killed Jesus. No, I killed Jesus. And when you get present to that, when you get present to the personal connection to the fact that a man was tortured and died and that he had to do it for you, it changes everything. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eternal Life, seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. As I've mentioned a few times, I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization of any kind. But if you are curious to get to know a bit more about me and the professional work that I do as an author, strategist, and speaker, you can head over to RoryVadenBlog.com. There you will get access to lots of free training resources for business people. I co-host a business podcast also with my wife and business partner, AJ, and we have a personal brand strategy firm that we run together. And I also release new free trainings every week on the psychology of growing your influence, all of which you can learn more about at RoryVadenBlog.com. I'll see you next time.